There is but one fact we all can agree upon. Everybody loves Hugo. Born to humble surroundings, Hugo Reyes has always been a beacon of light for all who crossed his path. A Hugo's lifelong love affair with chicken led him to acquire and then expand the Mr. Clutch chain. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 612, entitled Everybody Loves Hugo. This is the 114th episode of the series, there are seven to go. If you'd like to share feedback about the podcast, please do so. Indeed, you don't even need to do it in the next seven episodes. I'll always be out there to be answering your, your uh, feedback comments. But uh, certainly between now and the end of the podcast, you can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. Or call the listener line, 732-707-1815. And of course, with that last option, you may hear your voice on the podcast. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary for this episode, 612 Everybody Loves Hugo, which starts with the 2004 Flash Sideways timeline in which Hugo Hurley Reyes is a successful businessman and philanthropist. His mother sets him up on a blind date, but instead of the expected date, he meets up with none other than Libby Smith, who tells him that they already know one another. Libby is led away by her doctor, who explains that she is a resident at a psychiatric institution and has wandered away from a group trip. Later, Hurley meets Desmond Hume, who encourages him to believe Libby, and they try and find out why she thinks she knows him already. Hurley then visits the Santa Rosa Mental Health Institute, where Libby tells him that she remembers them meeting following a plane crash on an island. Hurley is unable to remember, but asks her on a date regardless. They share a picnic, and when Libby kisses him, Hurley begins to remember. Desmond observes their date from a distance, before driving off and visiting the school at which Ben Linus and John Locke teach. Desmond sees John Locke in his wheelchair, and after a short conversation with Ben, he runs Locke over with his car and drives off. In the 2007 original timeline, while visiting Libby's grave, Hurley is visited by Michael Dawson, who warns him that if the group follows through with their plan to blow up the plane on Hydra Island, many people will die, and that will be Hurley's fault. Elana collects four sticks of dynamite from the Black Rock. As Hurley voices his concern, Elana foolishly drops her bag containing the unstable dynamite, causing it to explode, killing her. Richard Alpert leads the group to collect more dynamite. Hurley sneaks off ahead of them and blows up the Black Rock, destroying the dynamite supply. He claims that Jacob has appeared to him and told him to take the group to the man in black. Richard does not believe him and remains intent on destroying the plane. He takes Ben and Miles with him to the barracks to collect explosives, while Jack, Frank, Son all remain with Hurley. Hurley confesses to Jack that he did not really see Jacob, 
and Jack tells him that he knows and is willing to follow Hurley anyway. The group hears whispers from the jungle, and Michael appears again, explaining that the whispers are the voices of the deceased island inhabitants who are unable to move on. He apologizes to Hurley for killing Libby. Meanwhile, Saeed presents Desmond to the man in black, who takes him to an old well. The man in black explains to Desmond that people built wells looking for the source that made compass needles spin at points like this. The man in black then throws Desmond down the well. Upon returning to his camp, Hurley's group arrives to talk to the man in black. With that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode A. An episode that I worry I won't be able to, to do justice with because it really it, 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 it picks up where um, where the Libby episodes of season two uh, have left off. There's a there's a, a a passion in her scenes. She's such a wonderful actress. It's it's rather heartbreaking that she hasn't done much work uh, since Lost, and just a a wonderful flash sideways story compelling island story uh and and just a wonderful episode but anyhow uh we get a very tidy and tight recap one that spells out every last important bit of island story from last week desmond has powers got zapped and joined saeed the story proper opens in black we hear that oh so recognizable sound of dr chang's voice telling us uh, the one truth in this world everyone loves hugo We hear uh, about the growth of Mr. Klux, but with foreshadowing overtones uh, to the future for Hurley, with words and phrases like beacon of light and exponential growth of his success. Indeed, I think it also speaks to our feelings about the character, a character that feels so much more special now than uh, perhaps we we felt about Hurley or indeed the other uh, 16 or so. Uh, main cast members who hit the beach back in September 2004. As Hurley gets called up to receive his Man of the Year award, there's in that scene just some great acting out of Mom, who gets neither a close-up nor even a lingering moment at the table, but she clearly is bored again. Indeed, we hear more about uh, this in the next scene, when Mom voices her boredom at yet another trophy for a man who has no woman. Indeed, Mom punctuates the end of this jokey opening uh, with what actually has been the setup all along. And if she doesn't, we will find someone who does. At this point, the show cuts to Libby's grave marker, silently. It's an almost overwhelming moment, knowing Libby's past on the show and knowing her future in it, and indeed her future in this episode. A lot of crazy stuff's been happening. I kind of wish I could talk to you about it in person. A lot of people have come to talk to me after they've, you know, gone. It'd be nice if you did too. You know, after re-watching this episode for the podcast, re-watching this, this scene particularly, I found it profoundly overwhelming. I, you know, I wasn't quite in tears, uh, but I did greatly uh, feel that Libby's role in the Hurley story, um, in the past, of course, had been something so important. But that importance 
now kind of reemerges, bubbles up in that scene and kind of reminds me and perhaps you, dear listener, uh, as to the impact that she's had on the story, on his character in, um, you know, in what is not a, a tremendous number of episodes. And when we first learned about her flashback story, it was presented so strongly and presented perhaps without the intention or even plan for her to return to the show. But return she does tonight. And that season two episode sticks out like a beacon, I would argue, offering up connective tissue that finally gets gets picked up or retrieved here in this in this episode. I also deeply enjoy the wordless commentary of Hurley replacing the fresh flower on Libby's grave with another fresh flower. Though he's been gone, that little moment suggests that he would have been visiting her grave frequently, would have been talking to her presence, if not her spirit, for the last three years, if only if circumstances allowed. All of this is captured and communicated in five seconds of visuals, but it really does speak volumes. Yet, of course, the show can't linger on that, sadly. Uh, there are more, more important uh, plot elements to deal with. Uh, Ilana reminds Hurley and us that they've got a plane to blow up and certain dynamite to use. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, dear Ilana. Note, too, the ironic comment from Hurley in response to the plan. He says to Alana, you're the expert. Quite a thing to say to a woman who will die by that very same dynamite. At this point, the show allows itself a moment to breathe, indeed to linger on Hurley's grief, and then it's go time. What are you doing here? I'm here to stop you from getting everyone killed. It is a tremendously compelling return for Michael, a character who certainly soured in season four, an actor whose complaints about the show has only soured us more. But the, you know, the show nonetheless invited him back, and I think that that's generous here. Um, it's also a good bit of timing, Hurley talking about Libby's murderer, then he indeed returns. After the title card, Michael speaks the truth. People are listening to you, Hurley, he says. Part of that ascendant Hurley that we've been seeing for uh, so much this season. Now, what people might, might that be? With that, Jack turns the corner. And it's a nice bit of foreshadowing that Jack, too, will listen to Hurley one day. Indeed, later in this episode. With that... We flash sideways, and we feel what will happen next, uh, or at least we're trying to, to will it to happen. That the show, unfortunately, credits Cynthia Waltros about five seconds before she shows up is woefully disappointing. But show up she does, and though we first hear her off screen, her close-up gets held for a few seconds wonderfully. Uh. Hi. Nice to meet you. Wow. Uh, I wasn't expecting someone like you. Uh, I'm sorry? You know, someone who's so... pretty. Please, have a seat. 
You don't look like a Rosalina. Oh, um, my name isn't Rosalina. It's Libby. So, you're not my blind date? No, I just saw you from across the room. Well, how did you know my name? Well, if I tell you, you're gonna think I'm crazy. No, I won't. Hugo, do you believe that two people can be connected? Like soulmates? I guess. You don't remember me, do you? Should I? What are you doing, Elizabeth? Are you bothering this man? No, no, he, he's an old friend. Actually, we just... Wait, what's, what's going on? I apologize for the intrusion. No. Come on. Dr. Brooks, if I could just... Doctor. I'm sorry, she just wandered off. Wandered off from where? Everything that I said, Hugo. I meant it. Forgive us. There's so much story to tell, both in this episode and for the series, but the fact that the scene there is able to breathe just before the doctor, Dr. Brooks, shows up, it's an enchanting and spellbinding moment. The show has precious little time to remind us of a character that we lost three and a half years ago. But wow, it does. Cynthia Watros's Libby is so earnest, so tender, so bordering on a broken heart with profound memories of a life that she remembers but no one else knows. With that, the story returns to the beach and in a wonderfully blocked scene, Ilana makes her way across the meager number of survivors just long enough for us to see everyone fitting perfectly into the camera's view. It's a, a subtle camera move, but you might want to go back and check it out because you just have these moments where, you know, there's Sun, there's Frank, etc., etc. Uh, Ilana notices that she has four sticks of the weepy, leaky uh, dynamite, as per Richard's decision. And it's a Hurley episode, so the fact that Hurley is questioning Alana is to be expected. What happens next still counts as one of the most shocking moments of the series, though. Look here with it, and they'll be angry at us. Jacob said Richard would know what to do. And Richard said to blow up the plane, correct? Yes. Well, Jacob never said anything about it to me. I mean, what if Richard's wrong? Hugo, I'm looking out for your best interests. All of you. Nothing is more important than this. That thing is evil. And God help us if it ever leaves this island. Because if it... That moment is meant to be one thing and one thing only. A warning to us all that anything can happen at any time. That we can leave our expectations at the door for what's left of the series. At this point, the story moves to Smokey Lock whittling a something that he claims he doesn't know what it is. Uh fairly expositionary scene unfolds with Smokey spelling out that uh, all of the bunch, Jack and Hurley and Son included, must come to them. It's a rather blah scene that's helped by Terry O'Quinn's acting as he whittles. With that, Saeed returns and asks for some private time, and a quick recap conversation later, they arrive at Desmond tied to a tree. Gee whiz, I did not see that one coming. That rather lackluster shock ends the act, and after the act break, Hurley is moping about, which, 
to be fair, is uh, natural to do after Alana's explosion. He finds a mysterious bag that I think even even diehard fans might might neglect to remember that that is uh, Jacob's ashes. I will admit I did not remember until I was uh, uh, reflecting further on the episode. Um, so sure enough, there he has uh, Jacob's ashes. And we cut to Richard having a little freak out about what uh, should and shouldn't be done. But the meat and potatoes of the scene isn't Jack trying uh, to impose a plan, which he is trying to do. It's when Hurley speaks up confidently and says that everyone should stick to Richard's plan. Jack nods in agreement, having now uh, accepted the position of second banana in the operation. With that, we flash sideways to despondent Hurley in a Mr. Clucks, drowning his troubles in a bucket of chicken. And who's there? Well, perhaps the rather lackluster Desmond return in this episode, the previous scene. Oh, not the previous scene, which was on the beach, but, you know, two scenes ago with Desmond tied to a tree. Perhaps that lackluster return is to be excused, because now he's also at Mr. Cluck's, rather skulking about. Uh, and you know, Desmond, of course, starts to chat with Hurley, things along the line of, hmm, weren't we on Oceanic 815 together? But, of course, Desmond isn't fishing for chicken. This Christ figure is fishing for men. You know, I say go where you got. You know, maybe you should, you should try to find out where she thinks she knew you from before you give up on her. 42, order 42. Uh, that's me, brother. There's such a, uh, a kind, warm passivity to Desmond's recruitment as he just tries to nudge here and suggest there and just like the Christ for which Desmond is a metaphor, there's a big aspect of free will uh, required for such things, not in Desmond's actions, but he's not trying to uh, impinge upon the free will of, uh, well, of, in this case, Hurley. The story moves to Smokey kindly talking to still-compliant Desmond, uh, who says in a delicious line that he shouldn't be prisoner because he's got nowhere to run. There's a fun bit of recap. Desmond talking about being blasted with a, an electromagnetic device. The scene at this point turns a little questionable once Desmond IDs the man as John Locke. We know, we know from prior episodes that the likes of Sawyer and Jin intrinsically can see that it's a a thing which stands before them, not Locke. That Desmond does not, or at least professes it anyway, uh, gets him a private walk with Smokey, something which, of course, Chiquino's music tells us is a deep, dark, not good thing. Chiquino's a tad heavy with some of these uh, scene ends and act ends lately. Anyhow, the story moves to Team Richard, or I suppose Team Hurley, <laughs> They're still deciding which team it is, but anyhow, uh, on team Richard slash Hurley, uh, Ben wonders about the divinity of the hand-picked protective Alana, who, Ben notes, died the very moment her island job was done, that job being telling the candidates that they were candidates. Ben wonders what's in store for them, meaning the assembled group, uh, when the island is done with them. 
I wondered if that was perhaps foreshadowing that Jack's purpose is to lead briefly. Anyhow, they arrive at the Black Rock, find Hurley missing, then Hurley running away from the Black Rock, and this series-long set piece, something that we've been with since before we even went to the ship, uh, you know, when, when there was just the reference to the Black Rock in, uh, in uh, Danielle's transmission. Or was it the map? Anyhow, some of Danielle's bit of craziness. This, this series-long location blows up at this point with Hurley saying that he's done that to protect everyone. Hurley explains rather nicely to fellow ghost uh, whisperer Miles that one of the, quote, dead people who yell at him, close quote, Michael, I told him to do it because oftentimes, great line here, dead people are more reliable than live ones. With that, we flash sideways to Hurley in the familiar confines of the office of Dr. Brooks down to that island painting slash picture uh, in the background that so confounded us in season one. Hurley is there to see Libby again, and a quick $100,000 donation later, he's back in that rec room again and for the first time. Uh, there are crazies in the background, what appears to be a Jack Bender-esque chalk mural, and for all the nostalgia, for all the wackiness, for all the, you know, yuck, 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 you won't let me in, let me write you a check. Quickly, Libby again arrives to transform the scene. Where is it you think you know me from? Um, I'm not sure, hey? I know it won't make sense. Try me. A few days ago, I was watching TV and one of your commercials came on. And the moment that I saw you, it was like I was hit over the head. All these memories came washing back of my life. Only it was another life. What kind of memories? There was a plane crash. And I was on an island. And I was there? I think so. You knew each other. Liked each other. And then when I got here, it was almost like I'd been here before. And for some reason, Hugo, I have a memory of you being here, too. Um, this is the first time I've ever been in a mental hospital. Yeah, I know. But I can't get you out of my brain. That's why the other night when I saw you, I had to talk to you. Because if you remembered me. I wish I could, Libby, but I can't. I'm sorry. It's okay. The supposedly crazy person who's actually the only sane one in a sea of crazies, it's an old trope, but here it's found anew again, not only because of our affinity for the characters, but the show really punctuates it with the warm, intimate, tight close-ups given to Libby. It really just, it, it, it encourages such a, uh, I don't want to use the word intimate again, but where because of the tightness of that close-up, because her, her shoulders are out of focus when her face is in focus, because it's that 
that that tight of uh, a close-up. We are forced to be in that close proximity to her. And it's the show is pulling us into our memories of her to feel comfortable with her. She's she's acting in an earnest, honest, uh, from the heart way. And the fact that the the uh, the nature of the focus on her pulls us closer to her face in, in terms of uh, you know how how it would appear to our eyes if we were if we were that close with that uh, degree of uh, you know blurriness around the things that are out of focus and, and all that it, it it really just exponentially adds to the scene and adds to her character and later in the scene Libby tearfully calls herself crazy as she really uh, just just drinks up those close-ups and during it Hurley calls her imagined other life on the island a bizarro alternate world which i think is a greater truth than not uh, the scene ends so very touchingly with hurley and libby wondering if they should go out on a date you know where the hurley and libby story ended uh you know we're, we're kind of approaching that point the hurley and libby island story the very prospect of such a date the very thing which was so unachievable uh to us in her life is just so incredibly tantalizing. With that, we return to the island with Smokey and Desmond pondering uh, about the island's hold, and more importantly, Smokey and Des uh, both see a young, blondish, otherish-looking boy, one who makes Smokey very, very angry as he pouts and declares that all of it should be ignored. There really is this wonderful sort of adolescence to uh to smoky at times whether it's in this scene or previous episodes that terry o'quinn lets spill out um really is the sense of a man who hasn't needed to grow up for the last two thousand years anyhow with that the story returns to black rock well the former black rock and hurley declares that he has a plan courtesy of jacob who hurley says is just right here Jorge Garcia gives something slightly inauthentic in his performance, precisely because he's bluffing. Richard calls him out on it, but hasn't taken into account that there's a new Hurley in town. And the scene that you're about to hear a clip from, it's so incredibly fulfilling to see Hurley simply step up, to set his jaw, to lay out his cards to Richard, all the while seated Jack and seated Ben linger in the background, watching. What? A while back, Jacob told me what the island was. If he's really standing here right next to me, then just ask him. I don't have to prove anything to you, Richard. You can either come with me, or you can keep trying to blow stuff up. Your call, dude. He's lying. Jacob isn't telling us what to do because Jacob never tells us what to do. I'm going to make this simple. If that thing leaves the island, that's it. it. It's over. What's over? Everything. I'm destroying that plane. And I can use all the help I can get. Who's coming with me? All right, all right. It doesn't exactly work, does it? But as the new group is split up again, there's a certain feeling of here we go again. 
albeit with both Lapidus and Son shaking their heads to tell Richard no. Can't they get a little dialogue, maybe just a word? Anyhow, the act ends with Jack voting Team Hurley, and they're off to go see Locke, while Hurley looks rather unsure of himself, by the way. After the act break, Son, who, lest we forget, is still an English mute, writes slash asks if they've made a mistake. Lapidus, everyone to tell it as it is, particularly in what may be his only moment of dialogue, uh, says maybe. At the head of the line, Hurley admits to Jack that there was no Jacob vision, and Jack has a true moment of clarity here. He's inspiring as he talks about letting go, not always needing to be in control, about going with the flow and trusting his fellow man. Then Hurley points out that since this actually isn't Jacob's plan, this all might genuinely be a mistake and that Jack's choice might lead to death. Like a little dramatic tension to sweeten the deal. Then, at this point, the story just stops for a moment to answer definitively one of the oldest mysteries of the show. Wait. It's cool. I think I know what these things are. Oh, yeah. What the hell are they? Right here. Hey, you around? Michael! You're stuck on the island, aren't you? Because of what I did. And there are others out here like you, aren't there? That's what the whispers are? Yeah. We're the ones who can't move on. Do you know where Locke is? No. Thanks. Is... Is there anything I can do to help you? Don't get yourself killed. Okay. And Hurley. If you ever do see Libby again, tell her I'm very sorry. I'll be sure and do that, dude. I don't know about you, but I find it rather reassuring to learn that here we have one of the oldest mysteries and one of the earliest theories has come true, that the whispers are the voices of the dead. Indeed, there's almost another early theory that gets uh, uh, found true here. The idea that, for these spirits anyway, it's a purgatory. Uh, within the confines of the show, this is a poignant and touching notion. And I wonder if it's perhaps a bit of a joke that the island is purgatory, as it turns out. Just, you know, purgatory for the ghosts. Anyhow, with that, at the conclusion of the clip, that is the perfect time for us to see, at long last, the date between Libby and Hurley. It's a bit of brilliance that the scene opens with Hurley shaking out the blanket. 
the blanket in another life, of course, that Libby went to go get from the hatch. As Hurley fixes the cheese, and Libby just pours out of her dress, meow, they talk about why they want to be with each other. What comes next, I should say, dear listener, doesn't translate perfectly to mere audio. It's so dependent on the visuals. But as they kiss and true memories start to follow, the series, I would argue, does nothing less than start to enter the beginning of its final turn, the final turn for the series. At the moment of memories returning, the show so brilliantly decides to drop all sound to keep the flashes of past short and quick to appear as echoes almost to our feelings. What? so many close-ups and despite our desire to see the two of them together even more the camera switches to a very wide shot and then cranes down to Desmond watching from afar one quick push of the sunglasses his car is sliding off off to the next 815 passenger we can certainly surmise based on the uh, comment from last week that is if we imagine ourselves as a first-time viewer once again, you heard at the end of that clip, the Giacchino music pushes the evil in, 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 or notion of evil mystery. I, to, in my taste, it pushes it just a bit too much. Such is the way of things, I suppose. We get the act break, then Locke leads Desmond to what looks like a well. What is it, Des asks? A well, says Smokey. There you go. Uh, I think that we can sense danger, danger, danger as Des looks down, down, down into the well. And while danger certainly is afoot, there's just an absolutely tantalizing bit of information that Smokey is about to impart about this old well. So old, in fact, that the people who dug this well did it completely by hand. God knows how long it took them. It seems like a lot of work just to get some water. Oh, they weren't looking for water. They were looking for answers. A long time ago, places like the one we're standing at right now made compass needles spin. And the people holding the compasses needed to know why. So they dug. Did they find what they were looking for? No, they didn't. It's yet another example of Terry O'Quinn's wonderful delivery and clearly meant to be uh, a little hint of island history, at least to tide us over until across the sea. There's some more dialogue about the evils of Widmore, uh, largely filler for some reason, then O'Quinn's performance again soars, going from affable to evil in just the blink of an eye. Why aren't you afraid? Excuse me? You're out here, middle of the jungle, with me, 
Not a person on Earth even knows you're here. Why aren't you afraid? What is the point in being afraid? With that push down the well for old Dez, the story coldly snaps into Camp Smokey, where Smokey declares Saeed's friend, Desmond, is no longer an issue. Everything, indeed, at camp seems copacetic, until Hurley suddenly shows up, and the look on Smokey's face is one of bemused surprise. Yes, we heard him talking earlier, talking about earlier in the episode how, uh, you know, the the rest of the bunch will need to come to them. But I don't think he was planning on it happening this way so quickly. There's a tense scene of, well, rather average dialogue, but great delivery between Hurley and Smokey, and the former calls for a peaceful dialogue, and the latter takes his knife out, kind of flips it around and hands it over. With that, the show, I think, can't help but feeling a bit retread. The rest of Hurley's crew comes on out in the show, Giacchino included, and it gives a half-hearted 8-12 to second montage of smiles and panning shots, though it does linger on Jack staring at Smokey Lock, and Smokey Lock staring at Jack, with the music rising and rising, telling us that it's the end of the episode. But there's still a minute or two left, and we're at Ben's school, with substitute Mr. Locke wheeling himself across the parking lot, though Desmond's activities are quickly questioned by the heroiest hero in the sideways world. Hello there. You waiting for someone in particular? Excuse me? Well, I notice you've been parked here a while, watching the kids, and, well, it is a school. Do you have a child who goes here? No, no, I was, um, uh, I just moved to the neighborhood and, um, and uh, I'm looking for a school for my son. What's your son's name? Charlie. Well, as a teacher here, I can vouch for it completely. It's a wonderful school. That's great to hear. Thanks. Well, it was nice talking to you. Have a good day. With that, Desmond guns it for Locke. Locke? Oh my God. Don't, don't move. We're gonna get to the hospital. Mr. Locke? Mr. Locke, can you hear me? Hats off, by the way, to the stuntman who, who did that fall. It really is, uh, <laughs> you see a guy on the hood and on the top of the car and falling from off of a car and spinning around, you know. There are jump cuts. I'm sure it wasn't done quite as realistically as, as as the show would make us believe but uh there's a there's a guy or a couple of guys who took some some hard knocks uh, for the filming of that scene and what i so enjoy about ending in the sideways world is that it's a reminder that especially after this episode the flash sideways world is increasingly important that it isn't some get-to-know-you dalliance set of stories, that it is profoundly real. 
in its own way, which of course only pulls us further and further to the final episode. With that, let's take a look at Lostpedia for the bits and pieces I've missed, and we have uh, we have a good bit of information here. Uh, first, some of the uh, smaller particulars. Uh, Emily Duravin and Yunjin Kim appear without speaking lines, though Sun communicates by writing. And also, uh, despite being former main cast members, Harold Perrineau and Cynthia Watros are credited as guest stars and not special guest stars, continuing the season trend of the alphabetical guest cast list. Also from Lostpedia, Perrineau appears for the first time since There's No Place Like Home Part 3 after 28 episodes. And this is also Michael's last episode of the series. bit more headlinery. Uh, with this episode, Hurley becomes the seventh and final character to have a flashback episode, flash-forward episode, and flash-sideways episode centered solely around him. The others, of course, are Kate, Jack, Saeed, Ben, Sawyer, and Son. As I'm sure we all know, especially us Geronimo uh, Jack's beard fans, uh, Jorge Garcia's real-life dog, Nunu. The late Nunu appears in one of the pictures with Hugo at the beginning of the episode. Also from Lostpedia, the baby photo of Hugo, shown in the montage, is actually a photo of Jorge as a baby. Lostpedia also says that young Jacob's appearance has changed since the substitute. One change is that his hair appears darker in this episode. And lastly, speaking of the wonderful podcast that Jorge Garcia did, the scene where Hurley looks through Alana's possessions and takes Jacob's ashes, that was a pickup scene filmed at the same time as what they died for, according to Mr. Garcia on his podcast. Well, with that, friends, let's look ahead to next week. Next week will be 613, The Last Recruit. After that, 614, The Candidate. Then the, the, the wonderful Across the Sea followed by what they died for, and then the end part one, the end part two. And I suppose now is as good a time as, as any to mention that uh, the end part two will not be the end of this podcast. There still is the new man in charge to, uh, to tack on at that. Here it is, June 6th, that this episode is being released. Getting ever closer to 8.15, dear friends. So with that, everybody, thank you, as always, for listening. This, uh, this episode was done... Rather, <laughs> I don't want to say hurriedly. Let's just say this puppy has to be uploaded soon to get uh, to get into your ears. Uh, but it's always great fun. Uh, I'll I'll pull back the curtain for a moment and say it's been quite a quite a rough week in uh, in the real world, and uh, it's uh, it's always such a treat to hop onto our little looking back at Lost Island to share these uh, share these reflections together. So, thank you for listening. I'll talk to you all again next week for 613, The Last Recruit. Take care, one and all, and bye-bye.